point I, I won't dwell on, or fourth, I'm sorry, fourth, it talks, uh, should be in your outline there, meeting together in ways whereby we experience, we don't just hear about, learn about, we experience the riches of Christian community encourages us, and that's something we need all the more, the closer we get to seeing the Lord. I get that again. Verse 10, 24, verse 25. Um, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Encouraging one another. And I should have pointed this out earlier, but the heart of this about not neglecting or not forsaking to meet together, that familiar command there in verse 24, immediately on either side of it are two of the famous one another passages. You know, there are about 21 or so of the one another's in the New Testament. Love one another. Pray for one another. Exhort one another. These one another passages that describe what it's like for healthy life in the church. There are two in this passage we've talked about. Um, stir up one another to love and good deeds, to be real Christians. Then encouraging one another. What's right in the middle of those two, literally? Don't neglect to meet together. So where do these one another's happen? Where does it happen that we stir up one another to be real Christians, loving good works? Where does the proper encouragement come from, from one another, when we meet together? Now you can meet together and those things not happen. So that's why I say this isn't just getting Christians in the same room, but it's meeting together in certain ways. Ways whereby we experience the riches of Christian humility. Among those riches are we're encouraged to be real Christians. We get encouragement when we're tempted to give up. That happens when we meet together. You don't meet together, you forfeit these inestimable benefits. But he says all the more as the day of the Lord's return draws near. And this is actually a little bit counterintuitive. You would tend to think, all right, the more mature a Christian gets, the less they would need the one another's. The less they would need meetings whereby we experience the riches of Christian community. After all, the older you are in the Lord, the more mature you are, you know the Bible better and its truths. You can remind yourself of its truths. You've got experience, you perseverance. You're more mature in Christ. You should need what the church gives even less. While that may be true in one sense, spiritually, going against that are a lot of other things. Number one, as your body wears down, you're, you're, some resolve can wear down with it, right? You're tired. So you need to be encouraged. Say, don't stop loving the church. Don't stop good works. Don't don't quit in the middle of the battle. Don't weary of the battle. Don't give up. We need you to model 
Christianity and following Christ faithfully all the way to the grave. We need to watch you all the way to the grave. We need to watch you die Christianly. We need to watch you deal with aging bodies Christianly. Where do you hear that? You just heard it. <laughs> Where did it happen? Here at the church. And the longer you fight the battle, the more weary you get of it. You want to give up. You say, just, I'm just going to reach for the rocking chair and just sit back and watch others do it. No. We need you all the more. I remember in the church I pastored, there was a, a, church, a couple that were charter members, the first eight members of the church. And, you know, they were pillars. Everything rested on them for many, many, many years. But not too long, when I got there, he was a deacon. She was the primary instrumentalist. But after a period of time, she pulled back from that. The church is growing. The church is stronger. I mean, she used to, she would play, and then she would go sit on her front pew, her husband sitting beside her. Then she kind of pulled back from that. They have got on the second pew. About six months later, they're halfway back. A year later, they sit on the back pew. And that was symbolic of their relationship to the church. Now, we need you all the more. We need consistency. We need maturity in action. We need models. That doesn't mean everybody has to carry the same burden their whole Christian life. Maybe physically they can't, but their example is still needed. What they needed was the encouragement they weren't getting because they weren't there like they used to be. They weren't participating like they used to be. And so the passage says here, you need this all the more the closer you get to seeing the Lord. You don't need it less. You need it all the more because your body is declining. Your resolve is going with it. Your weariness of the world and of fighting the faith, battle of faith, you tend to pull back and give up. The Bible says you need steel in your backbone all the more. You just need it in, in different ways than you used to. Jonathan Edwards, I did my dissertation. I love Edwards. His, his daughter, Esther Edwards Burr, was the wife I mentioned of a man last night, Aaron Burr. Now, this is Aaron Burr Sr. is their son, Aaron Burr Jr., that would be the vice president and then the duel with Alexander Hamilton. But Alexander Burr, Aaron Burr, was the president of Princeton. He would die as a young man. His father-in-law, Edwards, would take, assume that presidency. Within six weeks, he would die after a reaction to a smallpox inoculation. But the Edwardses, Jonathan and his remarkable wife, Sarah, had 11 remarkable children. One of them was Esther, and she married Aaron Burr. And while uh, her husband was president of Princeton, she wrote this in a letter to a very, very dear friend she used to have wonderful fellowship with. She was heartbroken when her friend and her husband moved away, and they would write. And she wrote this to her one time, reporting about what a great time of koinonia had, had encouraged her. She said, oh, my dear, how charming it is to sit and hear such excellent persons converse, talk about, the experimentals, in those days they meant the experiential things of religion. Talking about God and the things of God. I esteem, she said, religious conversation, koinonia. One of the best helps to keep up religion in the soul, to encourage us, as Hebrews says. Except secret devotions, I don't know, but the very best. 
then what a lamentable thing that tis so neglected by God's own children. It's already happening to some, the writer of Hebrews said. Don't let it happen to you. You'll be encouraged by it. All right, now I want to give application to this in three ways. First of all, I want to address church leaders. And by this I mean pastors, deacons, teachers, small group leaders. Church leaders, first of all, good leadership does not view koinonia as supplemental to the health of the church, but essential. What I've been talking about is not just gravy on top of the main dish. It's essential to the health of a church, health of a class, health of a ministry team, health of some subgroup within the church. The better the koinonia, the better the church. It's not supplemental, it's essential. I was in your state, uh, in the Panhandle, teaching a few years ago. And there's a retired colonel from the Air Force in this church. One of these types of guys, when I got there on Friday night, came, sat down, was kind of getting things together. He, you know, he, he walked up and gave me a CD of Bible studies he had done. You know, I think you could profit from this. You know, one of these, one of these kind of guys. You know, I haven't even met him before. He's, he's already telling me how I would profit from his studies and ministry and he taught a Sunday school class where he would give the fruit of his study and this class was famous or infamous as it were for being about 10 to 15 minutes late into the worship service he would not dismiss them because he wasn't through with them he would not dismiss them allowing to come worship because he hadn't finished teaching and giving the fruit of all of his study and you know, that was kind of the word about him, which, as I said, already kind of indicative. He's coming up and giving me these, these studies before we've even met, really. I talked about Koinonia at that conference. Sunday morning, he came up to me just before the start of the worship service, having already dismissed Sunday school, with tears in his eyes, this hardened old military veteran tears in his eyes he said we just had the best Sunday school class we have ever had we had koinonia today spiced into his teaching was the people talking about his teaching <laughs> talking about God and the things of God and he saw it for the first time and it transformed his ministry and his life the better the koinonia, the better the class. The better the koinonia, the better the church. Good leadership doesn't view it as, well, that's nice if, you know, we have it, we can work it in. It's essential to the health of a church. For the first time, that class did not have just a sit and listen meeting. Sit and listen to him sharing the jewels of his study. But he drew upon the gifts, the insights, the experiences of his people who were also indwelled by the Holy Spirit, who had spiritual gifts he didn't have, who had experiences he didn't have. No one has all the insights. No one has all the gifts. No one has all the experiences. That's why Romans says we, we can all teach one another. Second, for church leaders, good leadership does not presuppose koinonia. It cultivates it. You don't assume koinonia will happen just because Christians get together. We've already talked about that. 
You've been together with other Christians all morning in your conversations before and after the sessions. I can't assume koinonia happens. You have to cultivate it. Same is true with your, your situations. You can't assume because Christians are together, koinonia happens. My experience is socializing happens. tendency would be to socialize, not koinonia, so we have, we, we have to cultivate it. There's an intentionality. In today's church, koinonia seldom happens without structure. It's just people have to go through the outer circle to the inner circle, and if they never get at the outer circle, they never socialize, that's what they're going to do when they get together, and time's going to run out, and they got to start the class. Time's going to run out. We're going to start the worship service. We never got to koinonia. All we did was socialize. We must cultivate it. As precious as it is, as wonderful as it is, it will not happen without cultivation, without intentionality. Lots of meetings do not ensure lots of koinonia. Lots of meetings do not ensure lots of koinonia. So let me give you a couple of ideas for cultivating it. These are just testimonies of my experience these are not things that you you need to do rather ideas that might be thought starters are things you could adapt in your particular setting I'm going to give some church-wide kind of illustrations you may be able to do this on a smaller group setting in our Sunday night services again remember we had people come from 20 different towns so we would have our regular service up until uh, the last song before the sermon. So right before that last song, I would, uh, though I would usually preach from up here, I would come down because we'd have a much smaller crowd like this. People would typically try to get people in one section, you know, or sort of one area here. And I would come down and I would say, anybody got anything to share with the church body tonight? Now, I knew that was too broad, but it sort of helped shift gears mentally for people. Then I would give them some hooks to put their thoughts on. So if I just say, anybody got anything to share with the church body tonight, that's, you know, that's just so universal in life. That was getting the mindset ready. So I'd say things like, any uh, answers to prayer? Any opportunities to share the gospel lately? Anything you've been reading in the Bible or Christian books you want to share with us? And I would give examples of things that they might want to share. And, oh, yeah, somebody would say, you know, our grandbaby was born. Now, everybody in their Sunday school class already knew that grandbaby was born. You know, I mean, that cork had popped, you know, and... In Sunday school, they couldn't help it. The pressure had built up too much. You know, our grandbaby was born. Here are the pictures. You know, everybody in the Sunday school class knew it. But you know what? Most people in the church weren't in that Sunday school class. And the Sunday school class needs to have koinonia. But I'm trying as pastor to develop a church family. So I want everybody in the family to know about this. This is rejoicing with those who rejoice. So this was an opportunity for people to share Good news, bad news, so the whole church family could be a part of that. Maybe it was kind of situation, 
I want the whole church family to pray for that person right now. It's already happened in Sunday school. And in a large church, that's as far as it probably can go in most cases. In a large church, you, Sunday school class or small group, it becomes the church within the church. That's not your problem here. Not that's necessarily a problem, but it's a reality. You, you can't, if God blessed you and instead of, you know, I don't know how many you have on Sunday morning, 200 people, if you suddenly had 2,000 people, it's going to be a different church. You can't have the same relationships. You can't be as close to 2,000 people as you can to 200 people. And you can't be as close to 200 people as you are to 20 people in the church. That's just a reality. So if God gives you a big church, you have to find ways on the small group setting to make these things happen. But you're still of a size where if there's big news in somebody's life, you can share it with everybody. But you can't do that on a Sunday morning, but you can on a Sunday night or some other time. So I just intentionally carved out time for the church to have koinonia with each other. Some of it was socializing, but nevertheless, if it was such big news that we needed to rejoice with those who rejoice or weep with those who weep or pray for them, I wouldn't have space to do that. Occasionally, that time was so meaningful, I didn't preach. And the only reason that would happen is I had already preached that morning. I wouldn't give up the preaching of the Word of God. That's foundational. But that's one of the benefits of having an evening service is you, you've already worshiped God as a church body, perhaps have the Lord's Supper. You've had the preaching of the Word of God. You've had the things that church needs to do on the Lord's Day. But when you gather again, you've got some flexibility to do some things you don't have time for in a worship service. So that's one thing we did. The other I would describe to you is what I would call the, the most meaningful, significant ministry our church had outside of the worship services. One Sunday night a month, we had what we call a fellowship slash theological discussion meeting. Awkward name. Put it in the bulletin that went all the way across, you know, the bulletin. We had these tongue-in-cheek contests to come up with a better name for it. We never could. But it was a fellowship meeting, not socializing. But we had a lot of turnover in our church. It was kind of a bedroom community. There was 33% annual turnover in the whole town every year. It wasn't quite that bad in the church, but it was pretty bad. Pastoring that church was almost like pastoring a parade. So a lot of people didn't know what I meant when I said fellowship. They thought socializing when they heard fellowship. So I would, to clarify, say we're having a fellowship slash theological discussion meeting tonight. In other words, we're going to gather, we're going to talk about God and the things of God. We, we began to change our terminology, and we had church socials. We used the old-fashioned term. Tonight we're going to have a church social, and we're going to have, you know, Kool-Aid and cookies and fellowship hall. <laughs> And we, all we're going to do, all we're going to try to do is socialize. We assume some fellowship may come out of that, but you know what? We need to socialize together. Families do that. We're going to do that tonight. That's our only agenda. Ice cream social. Finally got an amen out of this month. All right. But this was not a social. We're going to fellowship. If you don't know our clar clarification of those terms, we're gonna, then we'll call it theological discussion meeting. So after the evening service, uh, 
usually, uh, uh, you know, I was one of the last ones out of the building. There was a, a, a family down the road, right in front of the church, but about a mile or so down the road where we normally held these. And um, the woman in that household was the biggest sponge in the church. If we had them anywhere else, she had school-age kids. She had to put them to bed, and she wanted to be there for the whole thing. So she had it in her home so she could get the benefit of all of it. So everyone knew that uh, they were to be seated, clothed, in their right minds there by 8 o'clock. The only snacks we permitted, uh, nothing cooked. Just the microwave popcorn was the most cooking we allowed. So uh, if everybody brought chips, we only ate chips. If everybody brought cookies, we only had cookies. Didn't want somebody to say, well, we can't go tonight because I didn't fix anything. I touched the nerve, I can tell. It usually does. We wanted people there, but we wanted them to know we're going to talk about God and the things of God. So uh, I had four prepared questions every time. Question number one, any questions about today's sermons? You know, don't have feedback publicly for those so but sometimes people have questions so I wanted to give feedback some people say pastor did you mean to say we could lose our salvation no I meant just the opposite you know well I'm glad I got to clear that up wouldn't want anybody going away with the wrong understanding misunderstanding there then second question was are there any questions about any of the sermons since we did this a month ago Sunday morning Sunday night Wednesday night you know many of you have heard a lot of teaching in the last month that raised any questions didn't get a lot from that usually but gave opportunity I'll skip the third one and come back to it the fourth question was something to do usually about current events from a Christian perspective um, you know how, how should we think Christianly about this and part of it was training for people because they might get a question at work about something and uh, so we might say how should we respond to the news of the uh, you know sexual predators and so forth all that in the news about the Catholic Church we're in Chicago great majority of people are Catholics how should we respond if that issue comes up so we talk about it. but you know what in all the years we did this only one time did we ever get to that prepared question because we always spent all of our time on question three. And question three was, what questions you have about the Bible, about Christian living, about something you read in a Christian book, something you heard on Christian radio? What questions you have? Everybody has those questions, right? Everybody has them. If I had an hour with Dr. Moeller, my boss, I could fill that hour with questions for Dr. Moeller. Everybody has those questions. When do we get to ask them? You say, well, that's what Sunday school is for. No, Sunday school is about the lesson. You can ask questions about the lesson. 
I said, well, I'll ask the pastor, you know, at the end of the service. Well, the problem is there's 10 other people up there are shaking his hand. You're about to come on, hurry up, hurry up, shake his hand, get out of here, you know. Well, I've got a question for the pastor. Well, we're trying to shake his hand and go home. Roast is burning, you know, hurry up. When do we get to ask the questions we have? And we all have them. Well, we set up a time for that. You have questions about the Bible, about Christian living, about theology, about some Christian book, we got a time for that. And so we would sit there, and, and uh, I wasn't always just the answer, man. Sometimes, I, you know, I would have other people. Or I might say, well, Matt, what do you think about that? Jared, what do you think about that? And then I would kind of summarize it, bring it together. Or if I knew someone had really studied or experienced that problem, I'd say, well, you answer that. You know more about that than I do. So I, I, I kind of would guide this time of koinonia and keep us on track. Then at 9 o'clock, I would read a page from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening and pray and dismiss because people, you know, had a distance to drive some of them or they had little kids that needed to get home. And those who wanted would stay. We would remount, reload on the snacks and have at it again. And I can still see in my mind's eye sometimes the host is pushing us out at midnight saying, you people have got to go home. We've got to get up in the morning. If the evening service went 10 minutes too long, those people would complain. When they got a chance to ask their questions, they would stay till midnight. And I loved it. I was exhausted, but I loved it. And they did too. Because they got to talk about God and the things of God. And the Holy Spirit gives you a craving for that. The Holy Spirit gives a Christian an affinity and an appetite to talk about God and the things of God. But we just don't have the opportunity very often where at least we feel the freedom to talk about these things. But we all have those questions. Maybe you can come up with a situation like that. One of them, as I said earlier, was sort of, not really questions, but just something to share with the church body in a whole church-wide setting in the church building. The Cornelia meetings didn't go as well, I discovered, in the church-wide setting. It's just too much of an institutional feel. Something about being in a home outside is just a little more normal to, to you know, ask questions and talk about those things. You weren't sitting in a circle in metal chairs. That was the most significant meetings I think our church had other than its worship service. So third thing, let me say to the leaders here, good leadership does not overlook the teaching potential of koinonia. It maximizes it. Just like that Air Force colonel, some teachers don't want to give up teaching time. I don't have enough as it is. Now you're wanting to have people talk. Ah, there is a great teaching potential in koinonia if you can guide it if you can manage it. So don't overlook the teaching potential of koinonia. Maximize it. Now I've talked about church leaders. Let me talk about church members now, address church members also in three things. First, realize your spiritual health is dependent upon koinonia, but your world is making it increasingly difficult to experience. Your spiritual health is dependent on koinonia, but your world is making it increasingly difficult to experience the koinonia you desperately need. Don't become one of those who sees the world only through glass. 
And I feel as though the world is just inexorably pulling me to become that kind of person, to experience the world only through glass, the glass of the windshield, the glass of the television screen, and the glass of this screen. How much of the time your eyes are open or are spent looking at the world through glass? I don't want to be there. I was in a McDonald's here again in your state. Ordered, you know, then turn around where the condiments and stuff are. There were three TV screens at least that big right above there. And I ended up counting there were 23 television screens in a McDonald's. I've discovered this is, I don't know if it, I, I've known it ever to be true in a women's restroom at a restaurant. But I know it's common for men. There are TV screens in the men's room. You don't have to miss any of the ball game, you know? And in the restaurant itself, you go there to have this, you know, intimate time with your significant other, but instead you're going, yes, touchdown. Oh, I'm sorry, what was that you said there? <laughs> you know, they got screens everywhere projecting material where an army of professionals have spent millions of dollars to grab your eyeballs and hold on to them. It's almost impossible to carry on a conversation in that kind of context. But the world draws us into experiencing it through glass. We will watch relationships, not experience them. We will enter into them vicariously not have them. People say, I don't want to see anybody. I want to talk to anybody. They come home and they will watch Andy, Barney, and Aunt B sit on the front porch, talk, and sometimes they'd give half of what they own to be able to sit there with them. God has created a cure for that ache that God-given ache in every heart. And it's koinonia. But I mean, but the, but the world is taking us away from that. That's what I'm saying. Let's open our eyes, let's wake up and see. That's the world we live in. We can't go back to Mayberry. This is the world we live in. So we have to go, hmm, how do I combat that scripturally? Because the world we live in doesn't even have front porches anymore and doesn't have sidewalks anymore. Instead of front porches, what do we have? Deck. Where is the deck? In the back. Why? Privacy. Get away from people. Even our architecture does that. There is a movement back. It's interesting, just like in the world, they want community. So they frequent Starbucks, even though they say, I don't want to be away from people. You know, I don't want to be with people. They go to Starbucks. There, there's an architectural philosophy. Umbrella term is the new urbanism. And it's designed to make urban areas more like they used to be more neighborhood oriented. Underneath that architectural philosophy, new urbanism, is a traditional neighborhood development, TNDs, traditional neighborhood developments. One of the models for this is in your state in um, 
up at the Panhandle, it's um, uh, yes. Well, celebrations started like that. But now this is this starts with see uh, seaside. It's up near Destin. Seaside, yeah, seaside. It's designed for walkability. It's designed for community. If if you haven't been up there, if you saw the Truman Show, Jim Carrey years ago, the place where it begins, where he's kind of inside the bubble. That's a real town. <laughs> they filmed that. That's a real town. It's it's seaside. And that is growing. We, my wife and I moved to a place like that in Louisville two years ago. And we'd been going there on date night like for three years. And I mean, zero lot lines, but every house has a front porch. Sidewalks right up. I mean, many times you can stand on the sidewalk and, and shake hands with a person who's sitting on the front porch. And so uh, there's alleys in the back, garages in the back, but a lot of people still have to maybe park a car on the street. But it's all, and there's like... Uh, uh, mom and pop places scattered all throughout. So it's designed for walkability. It's designed for community. And it is growing like gangbusters. They, they're building 100 homes a year in there. And you, they can't build them fast enough. And eventually going to be 5,000 people. And they're 2,500. And they're, I mean, they're going to do it. I mean, they're, they're ahead of schedule. It's a 20-year plan, and they're halfway through, and they're going like gangbusters and people just love it they get to know their neighbors everybody has a dog it seems I know three families in there who do not have dogs of course everybody has to walk their dog where are they walking walk them on the you know, sidewalk down to the to the dog parks and so forth and this this craving same people who say I don't want to be around people will move to neighborhoods like that and sit on the front porch and get to know their neighbors but Christians have something qualitatively better. But you have to take initiative. You have to go against the world in this case. You may have to invite people over. A lot of people, you know, that's how they justify the bigger house. You know, big house, three and a half bathrooms. This is a lot of big house. Should we do this? Is it right to do this? Well, we can have more people. You know, we have people from the church over more often. Good thinking. But then you realize once you get there to have people from the church over, you have to clean three and a half bathrooms. And nobody wants to do that. And so you don't have people from the church over. You have to build a front porch. <laughs> you have to move. The hardest of all, harder than any of that, harder than moving or front porch or anything else, you may have to bring up spiritual subjects when you're at church. You may have to talk about the things of God and initiate that when you're with Christians. But your spiritual health is dependent upon that. Second thing, church members, said, realize your spiritual health is dependent upon Koinonia. Second, reform the existing church structures you are a part of in order to, create, to cultivate Koinonia. Reform the existing church structures you're a part of in order to cultivate koinonia. Don't just sit back and say, well, I sure hope Pastor John's been listening this morning. So we can do something about this in our church. You can't do it for every part of the church. What about your class, your small group? 
part of the church you're part of, deliberately consider, okay, how, how do we change the way we've been doing this so we make sure people are talking about God and the things of God? And third, church members, recognize your responsibility to initiate koinonia both inside and outside the official church structures and gatherings. Realize your responsibility to initiate koinonia. Not all koinonia is to be experienced in the official meetings of the church. If you have a sense of a loss of koinonia, it's on you to make it happen. And you say, well, I, I don't teach a class. Oh, but you are together as an individual with other Christians informally sometimes. Whenever you meet, you can talk with another Christian. Don't wait for it to happen. Therefore, along those lines, let me give you 10 koinonia cultivating questions. 10 koinonia cultivating questions. If you bought the book Simplify Your Spiritual Life, these are on pages 192 to 194. There's some things in there about cultivating koinonia Cultivating koinonia in the church. Some of the things I've been saying the last few minutes are in there. Here are some questions you can ask to get from the small talk to the big talk. Questions you can ask to move from socializing to fellowship, to koinonia. Say, I want to do that, but okay, so I'm sitting across from somebody. How do I make this happen? Maybe you want to put these in, in, your, in the notes app on your phone. I may talk about cultivating good questions tomorrow and, and doing that kind of thing. But here are 10, 10 ideas. How is your fill-in-the-blank ministry going? If somebody is singing in the choir and the worship team like that, they're doing that probably because they like to do that. If they're teaching a Sunday school class, they do it because they like to teach. Ask, how's that ministry going? Get them to talk about their ministry. How's it going? Second question, where have you seen the Lord at work lately? Pretty wide open, but it gets it to spiritual things. Where have you seen the Lord at work lately? Third, what's the Lord been teaching you? What's the Lord been teaching you? It's pretty simple, not too challenging, but it can move the conversation to the things of God. Number four, have you had any evangelistic opportunities lately? Any opportunity to share the gospel lately? Number five, any obvious answers to prayer lately? We all love to hear about answered prayer. So ask about it. Had any obvious answers to prayer lately? Number six, what have you been reading lately? What have you been reading lately? Number seven, where in the Bible have you been reading? What impact has it had on you? I'm going to come back to number eight. Number nine, what's the main growth point in your life right now? You say, well, that doesn't sound like the way I talk. Well, say it your way. Number 10, what are you passionate about right now? What are you passionate about right now? Let me go back to number eight, which is the single best question I've ever come across, both in cultivating <clears throat> opportunities to share the gospel with lost people, koinonia with Christians. Just six syllables. That's 17 letters. How can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? I've seen that open more doors for the gospel than anything else. See, you hear that basically every Sunday, right? Come to Sunday school class. All right, any prayer requests? Wednesday night, any prayer requests? You've heard that 
literally thousands of times. Do you realize most lost people have never had anyone say that to them? Most lost people have never had someone say, how can I pray for you? You're, you're used to it. It touches lost people at a depth you and I are numb to now. They've never had anyone ask that. That, that says something personal that you and I have, have forgotten. I've seen people begin to cry at this point. I've seen people say, you would pray for me for free? They go to a church and say, yeah, we'll pray for you and light a candle, but um, they're shocked that someone would pray for free. And a lot of people, you begin to share the gospel with them, even just the beginnings of that, you can see the hearts close up, right? You know what's going on? And I've had that happen with many people, but when I say, how can I pray for you? The heart opens. They begin to share things you wouldn't imagine. There's some kind of people you say, how you doing? I'm fine. How, how, can I, how can I pray for you? Oh, man, my child is rebelling. Or I just got a diagnosis that terrifies me. And that opens doors often for the gospel. And it gives you the right to come back to that later on and say, hey, I've been praying for your son. How's it going? So you've got an opportunity to come back. Say, I've been praying. How's it going? So you have another opportunity to go to that, that heart level kind of conversation. Well, that's, that's with lost people. The same is true with Christians. I've seen that open doors for people to talk about their hurts and things they wouldn't normally share. You know, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine. So how can I pray for you? And things tend to get more real at that point. Good questions like that are a great way to move from the small talk to the big talk, but I need, I need to finish here. So those are 10 cultivating, Cornelia cultivating questions that you can use to take the initiative. All right, let me refer just to all people now. Finally, there is no koinonia with Christians without koinonia with Christ. These are not just sociological tips or tricks. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 1, 3, what we, we apostles, have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. The basis of what we've talked about, koinonia with each other, is because we have koinonia with Christ. And without that, anything else is just people skills. Second, those who truly have koinonia with Christ will crave koinonia with Christ's people. The Apostle John was also inspired to tell us in 1 John 3, 14, we know, we know we have passed out of death into life because we, we love the brothers. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how we know we love God. That's how we know our heart is changed. We can't imagine life apart from his people because so much of the way God ministers to me is through you. And if I cut myself off from you, I'm cutting myself off from one of the primary means God ministers to me, and I can't bear that. So anyone who really knows Christ will want to have koinonia with his people, and they find it satisfying. It's not boring. And finally, the local church, despite its faults, 
is the community created by Christ as the primary place where we should seek koinonia with Christ's people. This is the place God has given us where we should seek koinonia with Christ's people. Well, let's pray. Lord, I would ask you specifically that as a result of the teaching this morning, you would greatly strengthen the koinonia in this church body that you have created, that your son's blood has bought. Now may your spirit inflame this koinonia. Draw this church together. May they be stimulated to be real Christians. Love, good deeds. Encourage them. And I ask it in Jesus' name and for your glory. Alrighty, well, as uh, youth adults, we'll be meeting in here uh, tomorrow morning for our Sunday school small group time. Dr. Whitney will be leading. And uh, so uh, if you get here in the morning and, and you maybe see somebody that